Oh, so many of you are really bad at listening. Just not a skill that many in this audience have because the feedback that I'm getting on social media, in my email box, email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com, tweet us at rotounderworld, is just oozing stupidity. I never said drafting handcuffs was a good idea. I don't care if it's a running back handcuff, a wide receiver handcuff, a tight end handcuff, a quarterback handcuff. Drafting pure handcuffs is a waste of a draft pick. Why is that? It's two reasons. Number one, a pure handcuff has no standalone value. You can't play them. Inevitably, they linger around your roster on your bench for a couple weeks, crowding out other potential breakout players that you could be picking up. And then ultimately, injuries hit other areas of your roster and you have to drop the handcuff for a real replacement with real fantasy production. (laughs) It's a pretty easy opportunity cost formula. I could take a player who could break out in week one versus a player who will likely not break out at all. Pure handcuffs are pure nonsense. I'm talking about James Conner. I'm talking about Darren McFadden, Brandon Oliver. I just saw Brandon Oliver get drafted in a dynasty rookie draft in which a handful of fringe veterans are also available in the player pool. I just smacked my forehead. The Melvin Gordon owner just burned a pick that could have been used on a player with real value in year one, week one. It's just irrational risk aversion because while running backs are more injury prone than many other positions, they're not more injury prone than the tight end position. The tight end position is actually the most injury prone of the skill positions. And so what if your running back gets injured? He might miss a game. We saw LaShawn McCoy miss one game in the middle of the season and another game at the end of the season. And then he played in the games in between those high ankle sprains and knee sprains. David Johnson got hurt in the final week of the season. So if you handcuffed David Johnson last season, you had a dead roster spot for the entire season. It's irrational because even though running backs get hurt, the typical injury is not season ending. The real value of a handcuff comes when a running back is out for the year, but the number of running backs that experience season-ending injuries is relatively low. So the probability that your handcuff running back actually returns the value of the draft slot in which he was drafted is minuscule. And this is all working under the assumption that your handcuff is a one-for-one handcuff with the running back he's replacing. And 99% of the time, he's not. Darren McFadden is not going to have the same opportunity share that Ezekiel Elliott would if Ezekiel Elliott tears his ACL. Brandon Oliver is not going to have the same opportunity share that Melvin Gordon was enjoying if Melvin Gordon tears his ACL. I think James Conner is going to be as active in that Pittsburgh offense and as heavily used as Le'Veon Bell if Le'Veon Bell tears his ACL? Absolutely not. The entire premise behind the pure handcuff is flawed because of the misvaluation of opportunity cost and the flawed assumption that a handcuff back will eventually become the primary ball carrier for his team in the event of an injury. More often than not, when a primary back goes down, he's replaced with a committee. All the more reason to avoid handcuffs altogether in fantasy football. You're better off taking a backup tight end than you are a pure handcuff. And this isn't the first time that I've talked about this on the show, and yet I'm receiving emails and tweets criticizing my love of handcuffs. 
I don't love handcuffs at all. When the hell did I say I love handcuffs? I love Marlon Mack because he's both a handcuff and a high upside running back on a great offense with standalone value as the Colts satellite back. Marlon Mack is not a handcuff. Marlon Mack is a productive fantasy asset in his own right who would become the primary back in the event of a Frank Gore injury. So he has moderate standalone value with RB1 upside in the event of a Frank Gore injury. That to me is not a handcuff. That to me is fantasy football cold fusion. And when Frank Gore is getting drafted in round nine and Marlon Mack's getting drafted in round 15 of seasonal leagues, it's in your best interest to draft both Gore and Marlon Mack. That's my position. Both players are undervalued and their combined value is greater than the sum of their individual values when you roster both players. But I was not advocating handcuffing Frank Gore with Marlon Mack. That's not how you do it. Frank Gore is no longer an efficient receiver out of the backfield. Marlon Mack is. Therefore, I believe Marlon Mack will accumulate more receptions this season than Frank Gore. And if Frank Gore gets hurt, I believe that there will be a committee. Technically, Marlon Mack will not receive an 85% snap share. They will give short yardage carries to Robert Turbin, but Marlon Mack will be the primary ball carrier. It will not be a 50-50 committee. It'll be more like 60-40. And the running back getting 60% of the running back touches, everything between the 20s, everything in the passing game, that running back on the Indianapolis Colts, could absolutely be an RB1 in fantasy. Handcuff. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, I'd rather have a backup tight end with upside than a pure running back handcuff. And the inexpensive tight end with the most upside that comes to mind is Austin Safarian Jenkins. We've been talking about Austin Safarian Jenkins for two years now. We continue to have faith that Austin Safarian Jenkins will turn his career around because he's one of the best tight end prospects we've ever seen. When Austin Safarian Jenkins was drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you go to his player profiler player page and you see a player with a 1026 catch radius, 90th percentile, and an 1120 agility score, 87th percentile at 66260. That was when he was drafted. I know he's gained weight since, but when he was drafted, he had prototypical size and uncommon agility for a big player. The fact that a 6'6", 260-pound player could post an 1120 agility score, stunning. You just don't see that. And size-adjusted agility is one of the predictive athleticism metrics for tight ends. I mean, Austin Sferian Jenkins checked every box coming out of Washington. Great dominator rating, young breakout age, exceptional workout metrics across the board. That's why he was an early second-round pick, and then he fell victim to alcoholism. And what happens when you fall victim to alcoholism? Your work ethic deteriorates, your mood darkens, and you gain weight. That encompasses the criticisms of Austin Severian Jenkins during his time in Tampa. And now we learn, upon reading an insightful piece by Rich Kamini on ESPN, that Austin Severian Jenkins recognized that he had a drinking problem and sought help and has been sober for over 130 days. That's an incredible accomplishment. And it's not one accomplishment, it's two. The first one, the most important one, recognizing that he had a problem. The second one, staying sober. Because when you're that young, 24 years old, you think you can manage it. I'll just cut back. But the easiest 
solution is sobriety. And it's a brave solution for someone who is surrounded by young people who want to have a good time. This is an incredibly positive indicator for Austin Severian Jenkins' career. He's addressing this early on. He's been sober for nearly half a year. He's in the best shape of his life. And he's serious about becoming a star tight end in the NFL. And he's only 24 years old. We don't expect tight ends to ascend until their mid-20s. So if Austin Safarian Jenkins has a successful season in 2017, he will be right back on track following the typical tight end career arc. So go ahead and draft your primary tight end, Kyle Rudolph, someone you can rely on to, to receive copious targets, and then back him up with a tight end like Austin Safarian Jenkins, who is available in the final rounds of drafts and has top five tight end in the NFL in his range of outcomes. And the reason why Austin Safarian Jenkins can be drafted in the final rounds of Dynasty Drafts is because others are still drafting replacement-level, one-dimensional move tight ends like Cameron Bright. Why are they doing this? They're doing this because analysts like ESPN's Mike Clay continue to project Cameron Bright to log more than 500 yards receiving this year, despite the fact that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers added O.J. Howard and Deshaun Jackson and Chris Godwin in the passing game. But let's just keep writing down all those receptions and yards for Cameron Bright. Just draw that line following the trajectory from 2016 right into 2017 as if nothing's changed in that passing game when everything has changed. But no, 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 no. We learned last year that Cameron Braid is good because Cameron Braid was a tight end one in fantasy, and that's all we need to know. Last year is all that matters. Never mind what Cameron Braid did in college. Never mind that Cameron Braid was unimpressive in college and lacks prototypical NFL tight end size. Never mind any of that. Why would that matter when he's sharing a field with O.J. Howard and Chris Godwin and Deshaun Jackson? <laughs> Mike Clay's projecting Cameron Brait to post 556 yards. Meanwhile, he's projecting Chris Godwin to post 135 yards. <laughs> what? What? Excuse me? How? <laughs> This coming from the analyst who also was projecting Tyreek Hill to catch more passes than Jeremy Macklin. Yes, we saw Tyreek Hill be efficient last year and command targets. We're going to go ahead and carry that efficiency over into 2017 and add more targets. We saw Cameron Bright be efficient last year. We'll carry that efficiency right over into 2017. See, no reason why Cameron Bright wouldn't continue to command targets. How? 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 What is the logic behind that thinking? Like, what is it? I was befuddled by this on Twitter, and Evan Silva responded and said, Chris Godwin's a perimeter wide receiver like Deshaun Jackson and Mike Evans. That's why Cameron Brait will see the field a lot in 2017, and I simply disagree with that. Chris Godwin does not have field stretcher speed. He runs a 4-4-2, but he's not Deshaun Jackson. He's not even Travis Benjamin. And Chris Godwin does not have X receiver size. He has good size, 6'1", 210, but he's not Des Bryant on the outside. So Chris Godwin does not fit the profile of a stretch X or a stretch Z or a split end in the NFL. He is absolutely the future at the flanker position 
for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He looks like an inside receiver at the NFL level, even though he was a successful outside receiver at the college level. A lot of successful outside receivers at the college level ultimately move inside because because other receivers in the passing game have skill sets that allow them to win outside more consistently. Mike Evans has the stature and the skill set to win outside more consistently than Chris Godwin. Deshaun Jackson has the speed and the ball skills to win outside more consistently than Chris Godwin. I don't believe the Tampa Bay Buccaneers drafted Chris Godwin in the third round thinking they were getting an elite field stretcher or prototypical X receiver in the NFL. No. Chris Godwin is going to run slants and drag routes. He's going to operate over the middle and in those intermediate zones where the team was forced to deploy Cameron Brait last year purely out of necessity. But that's why we love the Tampa Bay offense this year because they're no longer deploying replacement level players out of necessity. There's no reason to project Yet, Mike Clay's projecting Cameron Bright and Adam Humphreys to dwarf Chris Godwin's output this year. It doesn't make any sense. If the Buccaneers cannot figure out how to get Chris Godwin snaps over Adam Humphreys and Cameron Bright, their offensive coordinator needs to be fired because their general manager has created a work of art. The perfect players in the perfect roles. Each player's skill set ideally fitting together with their teammates' skill sets. Just a perfect interlocking talent configuration from wide receiver to tight end to running back to quarterback in Tampa Bay. Hats off to their front office. It's like they learned how to create the ideal roster on Reality Sports Online. I go to Reality Sports Online to check my rosters every day, thinking about contracts that I've signed players to, whether I should trade a contract, whether I should pick up a player, whether I should try to salary dump. There's so many nuances and exciting dynamics to managing a team on Reality Sports Online. I highly recommend it. Their free agent auction room was a blast to run a startup with. The rookie draft took 15 minutes. It was so fast and so exciting. I love it, and I'm looking forward to migrating more and more Dynasty Leagues over to the Reality Sports Online platform because it offers the sophistication. 32-team leagues, IDP, salary cap functionality, staggered contracts, while also providing the simplicity for commissioners to easily set up leagues and for owners to easily manage their rosters, both in the off-season and in-season. So go to Reality Sports Online, sign up for a new league today, use the promo code UNDERWORLD. Fantasy just got real at Reality Sports Online. And my guest today is Heath Kruger. Heath Kruger is a writer and podcast host for Rotoviz. He's one of their senior contributors, and he's got a lot of takes on a lot of players. So we need to get to it. We need to talk to Heath, and you need to go follow Heath Kruger on Twitter at HeathK. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program, Heath Kruger. Heath Kruger is a writer and podcaster for Rotoviz. Smart guy, glad to have him on the Underworld. Heath Kruger, talk to me. How's it going, Matt? Big fan of everything you do. Big fan of all the all the podcasts you jump on with Rotoviz and you know all of the you know various 
podcast we put out, whether it's the report that me and Anthony do. Anthony, I know, is a friend of yours as well. I'm coming on that next week. Oh, really? Okay, perfect. You didn't know that? I did not know. Well, well, you're coming on ours. I didn't know. Are you bringing him on this podcast next week? I'm coming on your show next week. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, I know that. Well, that's what I just said. I misheard you. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, I'm coming on your show next week. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Um, Yeah, but you come on with Pat and, you know, the first time I ever met you, Mr. Matt Friedman, um, he specifically, you know, laid it out there. Watch out for Matt. Because I know you have an outline of how you expect this show to go. It's not going to go that way. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to start the show. You're going to, you know, exchange pleasantries with Matt. And we're going to get into a, a few points. And then slowly, Matt Kelly's going to grab the wheel. <laughs> and he's just going to start, you know, all of a sudden you're just going to start losing grip slowly. And there's going to be a lot fewer words coming from you. And a lot more coming from our friend Matt Kelly. Oh, I was like, no. okay, well, I, okay, I got to prepare for this. Oh, the book was out on Matt Kelly early on, thanks to Matthew Friedman. Yes. Yeah, Matthew Great guy, by the way. Great guy. He's the best. Yes. Yes. But yeah, we love having you on, Matt. And everything you do with Player Profiler, it's, I, I just love all of it. Player Profiler, Rotoviz, we are brothers in arms in the great film versus metrics war happy to go to battle with you guys also the roto world guys great guys part of our alliance and i was looking at some roto world headlines and one jumped out at me today and it's funny how the definition of a headline changes depending on the time of year so what's a quote-unquote headline in may (laughs) is not something anyone would talk about in august but because it's may it gets headline status so the headline today was that Sean McVay wants Lance Dunbar to be his Chris Thompson this year, which necessarily means less carries for Todd Gurley. And I thought to myself, why is this even a discussion? Why is this a conversation? And why are we so sure that Todd Gurley is the problem in Los Angeles? Of all the players on the Rams, the last player that you want to think about winding down his role, it's Todd Gurley. So does this mean that Lance Dunbar is going to be a thing this year, or is there nothing to worry about? Are we just spinning our wheels because it's May? Yeah, in all likelihood, it's because it's May. But I guess there's some credence to the argument that you know Lance Dunbar might be more involved. But I, I seriously doubt it. I mean, you know, Lance Dunbar was one of my guys. Lord Reeves put him onto me pretty early on, um, back in 2014, 2015, when, you know, he was still a thing. He was a fantastic player on the Cowboys. But, you know, following that injury he sustained, it really zapped a lot of his agility, which, you know, his game was completely reliant on. Um, And it's more just, I think there's a serious lack of understanding of what Todd Gurley is capable of reading a headline like that. Because Todd Gurley, coming out of Georgia, he was not... You know, he was not this rich man, Samaje Perrine. He was not this guy who was, you know, very one-dimensional, straightforward type guy. Todd Gurley is Ezekiel Elliott in terms of talent. Yeah, he's perceived as this between-the-tackles pounder. That's not him at all. Yeah, yeah, and and he's probably even slightly better than Ezekiel Elliott talent-wise. It's more so that I think people fail to realize just how important landing position is for the running back position. All of a sudden, you know, tale of two cities here, essentially. We have Todd Gurley goes in the top half of the first round to the Los Angeles Rams. 
And we have people looking at him in Dynasty and making comparisons to guys that really can't even hold a candle to him in terms of talent. But then we have a guy like Ezekiel Elliott. Very talented. Don't don't get me wrong. Incredibly talented. Goes to the Cowboys, and all of a sudden he's in discussions with guys like Le'Veon Bell. You know, should I should I be trading Ezekiel Elliott for Antonio Brown type right. of discussions? Right. Where Todd Gurley, he's on that same level, but he's on the Rams. So if you're looking to like a buy low kind of guy, and if you're optimistic on the Rams organization, really turning this team around fairly quickly, Todd Gurley can increase in value as early as this year, but I'm not very optimistic about that because just how the, of how this organization runs, and I'm not really big on say, hey, we bring in a Sean McVay, a you know, very talented offensive mind, and all of a sudden talent's just going to come out of nowhere. Yeah, you don't want to throttle back Todd Gurley's opportunities. No. <laughs> okay, that's just not something that should ever be in the discussion. Todd Gurley was a fantastic receiver at Georgia, absolutely the prototypical every-down, all-purpose bell cow back, 10.9%, 76th percentile college target share. He can do it all. In fact, last year, he proved it. He had 43 receptions on a team that wasn't throwing the ball very much, wasn't running the ball very much, didn't have the ball on offense very much. So there's not a problem with Todd Gurley. Now is the time to buy Todd Gurley in all formats. And what's maddening to me is how the sausage is made with coaching decisions, how they create these quote unquote schemes, because you always hear fantasy analysts talk about the scheme and the McVeigh scheme. He's coming from the Gruden scheme, of course, when that's based on another scheme. Well, Todd McVeigh's job is not to jam whatever personnel he has into this preconceived scheme. His job is to evaluate all the players' skill sets on the roster and devise the most effective scheme that maximizes all of their ability as a cohesive unit. And already you hear with the reasoning that he's giving for expanding Lance Dunbar's role, potentially, we don't know if it's real, could be just coach speak, could be just speculation by a beat reporter because it's May. But if it's true, it just shows the flawed logic and the flawed system construction principles that these coaches work from. And it's maddening to me because Lance Dunbar is absolutely a viable satellite back in the NFL. On another team, he deserves significant touches in those high leverage situations two minute drill hurry up offense third down but not on the rams because when you're the rams you have todd Gurley, and if you have one of these rare all-terrain workhorse backs then you're never giving away what your intentions are on any given down and distance to the defense because you just keep Todd Gurley back there, just like you did last year. He had an 84% opportunity share, which is number two in the NFL. That's where he should be, in that Le'Veon Bell level opportunity share. Because when he's back there, the defense can't key on who the running back is. In Washington, the defense could key on whether or not it was Rob Kelly or Chris Thompson in the backfield. So if you're Sean McVay and you're considering playing Lance Dunbar more because you had success with Chris Thompson, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're a team that is as talent void on the offensive side of the ball as the Rams. The fact that you have a early round running back pick and Todd Gurley, you have to start building from somewhere. So 
in the meantime, you have to put out your best pieces on the field because, number one, you just want to work to keep your job. You want to put out the best product as, that you possibly can. And, I, and Jared Goff, um, I, they're going to have to roll with him. You, you just kind of you play the hand you're dealt, sadly. Um, you know, the previous, you know, people in charge overspent on them. That's not your problem, though. You have to kind of just move forward with what you have and see, you know, can we do anything with these pieces that we currently have? And in the meantime, could you still have to put it at least as the most functional offense you can on the field? And Todd Gurley is it. Todd Gurley, when Jeff Fisher drafted him, as inept as he was in so many areas, he at least understood the value of maybe maybe overvalued, but the, the value of a running back that is capable of operating on all three downs and not being stuffed into this box to where the defense can key on essentially what kind of player you are because Theo Riddick is not going to be an inside the tackles runner, and you can try. He's not going to succeed, and you can you know say, oh, Theo Riddick, we can run him in between the tackles too. You know He goes for two and a half yards per carry, and you know I guess you were a little sneaky, but it doesn't matter. But Todd Gurley is that guy that... I think a lot of people kind of are maybe sleeping on him in terms of even redraft, really, because I know it's a long shot, but the upside he represents, even though you don't get him at a great value this year, he represents that David Johnson, that Le'Veon Bell, to a lesser extent the Ezekiel Elliott, because I'm not as completely in on him as some people are. He represents the ability to have 300 rushes on the ground, while also being the number two wide receiver in this offense, which is something that you really need to ascend to that truly elite running back level that we saw from the big three last year. When you look at Todd Gurley versus Ezekiel Elliott, it reminds you just how situation-dependent running backs are. It doesn't matter if you're Todd Gurley level good. Todd Gurley is a top five running back talent in the NFL. I think most people would agree with that. He's just been betrayed by his situation. And not only has his situation been poor the last couple years, it's also constantly in flux. The fact that Todd Gurley's on his third offensive coordinator in three years, and that the dynamics continue to change with the offense every single year, a different system, does that impact players? Is there evidence that a fluctuating system can diminish a player's fantasy football potential? In terms of data-driven type analysis, I'm not aware of anything. Because you hear it all the time, right? You hear this narrative that there's been a lot of turnover and this player's on his third offensive coordinator in three years. We've seen this happen to quarterbacks, to running backs, to wide receivers. It's a well-worn narrative. I'm just not sure it's backed up by anything real and you've never seen it backed up by any real evidence. Not anything like kind of what I would deem as something we could really hang our hat on in terms of like, you know, data-driven type analysis. I mean, it could be, you know, you don't want to get, you don't want to think too far into it and kind of make assumptions because that could often lead you down a path that you really shouldn't have been going down in the first place. But if I were to kind of just, you know, throw an initial thought at it, the fact that you have three different offensive coordinators in three years, that that type of example, that would I, I would assume that is leading, you know, leading you to believe that the offense that was in place was not working out. It was not effective. Thus, it could be a symptom of a player having to operate in ineffective offenses than really necessarily having to learn new ones and not really grasping the concepts as quickly as it can to be effective on the field. Here's where I think that fluctuating offensive coordinator criticism may be a fallacy because all teams run a version of the West Coast offense. You see players traded midseason 
It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And they're able to pick up the playbook within a week. Why is that? Because the X is the X. The Y is the Y. The Z is the Z. A lot of the terminology is the same from team to team because they're calling plays out of the same playbook. They're just using different acronyms that mean the same thing. So once you have familiarized yourself with this updated acronym key that a certain team uses to verbalize the personnel packages and the play call, once you have the new key, it's very easy to pick up right where you left off. You know that you're running the same route in the same game situation that you were with a different coordinator in a different system. It just has a slightly different nomenclature in the playbook with Washington as opposed to Cincinnati. So I don't think I can blame a player's failures on a fluctuating offensive coordinator. It's generally exactly what you said, that these players are predisposed to fail anyway because the previous offensive coordinator failed and the previous offensive coordinator failed, not because of constant offensive coordinator turnover, but because the team isn't structured in a way that can win because the team is talent deficient. That's almost always the reason. If you really want to know why most teams don't win, it's because they're talent deficient. It's not because they had the wrong system. Yes, yes, and that's why I think most data-driven analysis in fantasy football really relies so much on emphasizing the importance of athleticism. Because when you when you are creating an offense, you are not creating one that is essentially, you know, we take this player who you know is kind of he he meets this certain type of body size he can do this he can catch the ball over the middle he's a slot receiver so uh yeah that's our guy and it really doesn't matter who we put there because if that was slot receivers would be dime a dozen but we see the difference in effectiveness from slot receivers we see guys like julian edelman cole beasley these guys that you know kind of separate themselves from the pack while different teams may not provide as ample of opportunity or possibly if they are very, for the lack of a better term, translucent, you know, their, their play calling is very apparent as to what they're going to do. Um, that may kind of maybe add like a little bit of a standard deviation there to where you can kind of get a little bit better, a little bit worse. But essentially, when you have a good player, a good player, if you just kind of give him the opportunity, he's going to show you that he's talented or not. And, and and that's why we play such a premium and, and we don't really rely as much on these kind of tertiary factors. Exactly. We try to cancel out the narratives and the noise. 100%. You were talking about slot receivers. Who's the slot receiver for the Rams? Is it going to be Cooper Cup or is it someone else? Who's essentially the number two receiver behind Robert Woods? Oh, gosh. Um, my initial thought would be Farrell Cooper. Yeah, Farrell Cooper, you know, he's a guy kind of along the lines of Rashad Higgins coming out of college, just an uber-productive guy, one guy that was just off the charts in terms of Phenom score, uh, John Moore's index on Rotoviz, um, and a guy that just really was not given any opportunity last year on the Rams. Um, you know, you can really chalk that up to being a rookie, chalk that up to really just the passing offense being completely inept and Jared Goff, you know, really not being capable of running any sort of decent passing offense. Um, and there's really no one else to compete with. I understand that Robert Woods has come to town and Robert Woods is now kind of assumed to be the guy that is really just going to take over in terms of targets. I'm not 100% sold on that idea. 
Who the hell could be 100% sold on Robert Woods? Who out there in fantasy land is 100% sold on Robert Woods? Who is raising your hand out there in this audience saying, yeah, that's me. That's me, guys. Me. I'm 100% sold on Robert Woods. No. That person doesn't exist, Heath. Well, I guess if you want to kind of like draw comparisons, you can compare him to like a, a very poor man's Pierre Garçon. Yes, we will have Robert Woods projected to be the target leader for the Rams this year because, of course, we will. There's no one else that is proven. But if you're choosing between Pharaoh Cooper and Cooper Cup, for example, the story of two fucking Coopers, <laughs> to be the number two receiver for the Rams, it's absolutely Pharaoh Cooper. The two players have similar draft capital. One guy is best comparable to Austin Colley and Jared Aberderis. Meanwhile, Pharaoh Cooper is closely comparable to Willie Sneed. Now, the difference between Pharaoh Cooper and Rashard Higgins, who you mentioned earlier as a comparable, is that Pharaoh Cooper has a significantly higher BMI. While Rashard Higgins was very svelte coming out of college, tall and very thin, Pharaoh Cooper compact, 5'11", 203. So he has that Taewon Taylor, Willie Sneed body type that we like. He has an 80th percentile dominator rating and an 80th percentile breakout age. Can I give you a list of receivers that have 80th percentile dominators and breakout ages? Would that be a list that would interest you? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear it. I don't have it in front of me, but everyone can go to playerprofiler.com forward slash data dash analysis if you want to pull up that list. It's very straightforward and export it to Excel. And you can do whatever you want with it. Of course, I don't have that in front of me. It's a pretty long list, actually, but it's a long list that encompasses a lot of good receivers. That's the company that Pharaoh Cooper is keeping. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's, he plays one of those positions that doesn't necessarily have to have the most athleticism. Um, you know, would. Kevin Cole of Rotoviz uh, a while back, he, he wrote an article, and I can't remember the exact title, but essentially it alluded to, you know, during his analysis of kind of looking back at, you know, what is the essentially the most important thing to, to key in on when looking at these wide receivers coming out of college. Um, it was something along the lines of production isn't, you know, the, big, the, the one thing, it's everything. Production is so important when it comes to, you know, college wide receivers that it, it, it can almost in a way trump everything else. It does. It does. Age adjusted production absolutely trumps everything else. And in particular at that slot flanker position. Now, if you're an ex-receiver, athleticism is going to matter more. But what you said was interesting and true that if you're going to be running short and intermediate routes, athleticism matters less. If you're not going to be facing the number one corner on the other side of the field, athleticism is going to matter less. You need to be better at understanding the nuances of the position. That's where a guy like Pharaoh Cooper wins. How could he not? Under six feet tall, at 203 pounds, he's posting a 43.1% dominator rating at South Carolina. It's a major conference school in the SEC, and he was dominant. So he's the guy that I am stashing across all dynasty leagues just in case this Los Angeles Rams team can just incrementally improve. That's all we're trying to do here. We just want incremental improvement. That's it. Better season for Todd Gurley. That's going to happen. Robert Wood's career year. That could happen. Unbelievably. I know, but it's a situation. And a mild emergence of Pharaoh Cooper into fantasy relevance. We're not asking for a lot. 
What about yeah. the tight end position? A lot of people are asking Gerald Everett to emerge this year and just become the main primary option at the tight end position for the Rams and to be a favorite target for Jared Goff. Chasing rookie tight ends. That always ends well. Doesn't it? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> let's put Gerald Everett off to the side because I think on the Rams, it's a long shot for him to be relevant. Is there a sneaky rookie tight end who you think could make some noise this season? Someone like Hunter Henry last season? Gosh. Just can't be a first-round pick. I don't want to hear about Njoku and O.J. Howard and Evan Ingram. We know about those guys. But a non-first-rounder who could impress people with some rookie year production. Give me a guy. Just a guy. If I had to give one guy, I'm not I'm not big on rookie tight ends, but no one is. No, we're starting the conversation with a preface. We hate rookie tight ends. This idea that Gerald Everett's going to be a factor this year is a long shot. Mm-hmm. But given that we're talking about long shots, who's a good long shot? Jonu Smith. Jonu Smith of the, of the Titans. Ultimately, I mean, if we're looking at it right, you know, this Tennessee Titans team last season, um, they were bottom five in passing attempts, but just without uber efficient Marcus Mariota was and just how talented this this offense is um they and they really should rely more on Marcus Mariota if they're going to try to kind of take that next step um because ultimately it's just it's just bored out that you know passing production is just far more efficient than running production um in 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 Tennessee right now we're coming off of an offense that featured Rashard Matthews who led the team in targets followed by you know Delaney Walker who's still relevant Still relevant, of course, but he's getting up there in years. Um, and then the only real addition um, besides John Smith is Corey Davis. Now, we all know that, you know, sometimes it takes a year. Corey Coleman, who I'm just infatuated with in terms of, you know, wide receiver prospects, he didn't, he didn't succeed last year. I'm not looking at him as like, well, that was just a failed year. It's just sometimes, you know, it takes a, a year or two to really kind of, you know, find that, you know, their footing in the league. Um, and if John Smith kind of just looking at his measurables and what he did in college Oof. at Florida International. Wow. He he meets everything. He has production. He has breakout age. He's got the, the prototypical size. He's got the speed. He's even got pretty decent agility and, and fantastic burst for a tight end. This is a guy that if he is able to get on the field and kind of maybe become that Tajay Sharp 2.0 at a different position for the Titans, why not John Smith? He's 21 years old, Heath. Yeah. He's 21. This guy's young. He's incredibly athletic. 10-16, 78th percentile catch radius to go along with a 130.0, 93rd percentile burst score, as you alluded to. Incredibly athletic, but the production. He has both a 90th percentile dominator and a 90th percentile breakout age. How many tight ends in the NFL have a 90th percentile college dominator and a 90th percentile breakout age? Not many. I don't know. If there is any at all. You have to go to playerprofiler.com forward slash data dash analysis. To find out. I don't fucking know, but I know it's a pretty short list. And it's incredibly impressive to be on the field and productive at age 18. And to account for 33% of your team's offense out of the tight end position at the college level. All wow factors. So that's what John U. Smith is. He's a human wow factor. I love that pick. You mentioned Corey Coleman. Does this Browns offense excite you at all? Legitimately excite you? Does it a little bit? Yes, 
But I say that with hesitation because I'm always seem to be. What's the hesitation? Why are you hesitating? Why don't you say <laughs> yes? Why can't it excite you? Just because they didn't win a game last year doesn't mean their offense can't excite you in 2017. I'm a big believer in Hugh Jackson. I love what they're doing with the team. The offensive line looks fantastic. Oh, it's going to be so good. They're going to maul people. Cody Kessler, you know, the best rookie quarterback last year. After Dak Prescott, it would be Cody Kessler. He at least was the most efficient non-Prescott rookie quarterback last season. You have Cody Kessler will be the week one starter. We'll see how long he lasts back there. Who knows? Deshaun Kaiser could be good. I don't know. I'm not an expert at evaluating quarterbacks. I never pretended to be. So if Kaiser's good or if Kessler's good, we have two chances at having some average quarterback play, which is all you can hope for, average quarterback play. If we have some average quarterback play, that means electric production from Corey Coleman, one of the most underrated wide receivers in the NFL, Kenny Britt, the steal of NFL free agency. You have David Njoku at tight end. You have Duke Johnson out of the backfield catching passes. This passing attack is exciting. And you have Isaiah Crowell just thumping people between the tackles behind one of the league's best run-blocking offensive lines. I mean, look out. I'm not shy, Heath. I'm not shy. I love this Browns offense. I think they're going to score a lot of points. I think the whole team is going to surprise people, and they're going to shock people going 6-10. and 10. But they shouldn't be shocked. Because if you're shocked when the Browns go 6-10, and 10, it's your fault because you just haven't been paying attention. Yes. Yes, this Browns team has just a ton of talent. Um, but it's also just one of those things that it, it's hard to fully buy in because I always think I find myself buying in on Browns players. Buy in. You know, buy before in. they're really kind of buy in. all the way. Buy in. I, 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 I totally get it this year, though. The only thing that buy makes in. me gives me a little bit of hesitation is... You can buy in. <laughs> Vegas buy has in. the Browns still at the lowest projected win total on the season. Bet it. I'm going to bet it. I'm going to Vegas for the FFPC main event. And I'm going to put money on the Browns over four and a half wins this year. It's a pro tip for any gamblers out there. Uh, Hugh Jackson oversaw the collapse of Jeremy Hill's efficiency in Cincinnati. Yes. (laughs) And you were a Jeremy Hill enthusiast at one point. But then you talked to me about going to playerprofiler.com and you had an aha moment. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, so... You know, we've all had those guys that, and I'm sure I'll have more, you know, I guess really I hope the process just kind of leads me to making less mistakes down the road. But, you know, we all have that guy to where I saw Jeremy Hill in his rookie year, and it could have been recency bias because I picked up Jeremy Hill, and he did well for my fantasy teams. I had a lot of them. Um, And he just kind of happened to land in a great situation in Cincinnati where, you know, that Andy Dalton-led offense was just playing fantastically. Um, he was just essentially getting put into all of these very favorable situations behind an incredible offensive line in Cincinnati. And he, he almost posted, if not over five yards per carry, um, he looked like a guy that could literally be everything. He was an in-between-the-tackles guy. He could do it at the goal line. He wasn't even bad at catching passes. And I thought, okay, this is a guy that, you know, this could be the next level, you know, the, the, the next big three-down back, the next bell cow in the NFL that – you know, in fantasy mm. football, he's just going to be a monster, right? A monster. Mm. Mm. And then I remember looking at player profiler at that time. You know, it was kind of new on the scene. It was kind of new on the scene. And I, and I thought, wow, you know, he's not very fast. No. He's not very agile. No, no. 
Not really great burst. No. He, he's, uh, he's big. Yeah. But. Yeah. Wasn't particularly dominant at LSU. Yeah, not very productive mm-hmm. on a team where he should have been very productive, given mm-hmm. they had Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry. He should have, you know, had plenty of opportunity in that LSU offense. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, you know what? Maybe I'll just roll with this first year because I think I saw what I needed to see on the field. And that's where my fundamental mistake was. The eye test was revealed as the lie test. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that was my first big slice of humble pie, I think, in in Dynasty. And, and really, that was the eye opening thing for me of, you know, we love to really see these guys and we kind of get an emotional attachment in some ways to these fantasy players. You know, it's like, man, not only did he win for his team, he won for my team, too. My team, you know, succeeded with Jeremy Hill, like leading the way. And it really kind of pushed me away from taking a very neutral standpoint and looking and seeing, is this really Jeremy Hill or do we need to kind of, you know, maybe he's overvalued. Maybe he just kind of landed in a favorable spot and we shouldn't expect this guy to be, you know, the next 5.1 yard career yard per carry guy. Fooled by randomness, Heath. Fooled by randomness. And this is why we continue to feature those college metrics and the workout metrics on the top portion of player profiles, even once they've been in the league a couple of years. People ask me that. Why don't you shift these numbers down below when they start to lose relevance? And I think that's a good idea for a Jeremy Macklin, a Julian Edelman. Their on-field production and efficiency eventually defines who they are as players. But for multiple seasons, it's important to continue to refer back to what those players were in college because you never know when that Jeremy Hill rookie season can fool even the best of us. We're all susceptible to this because Jeremy Hill just happened to be put in situations where he could win on an inordinate number of touches in his rookie season. He had an incredible offensive line. The offense as a whole was efficient, lots of red zone visits. He was on the outer bounds of probabilities, breaking long runs. And then when the probability swings to the other side and the offensive line's not as good and the offense isn't in the red zone as much and those breakaway runs aren't happening for whatever reason, suddenly a player that looked like the next great bell cow back in the NFL looks entirely average. So that's why we will continue to keep those college metrics and workout metrics featured on the site. Now, one player that has interesting metrics is Ty Montgomery. And his metrics are even more interesting because they shifted last year from wide receiver to running back. And it was fascinating to watch the shift, Ty Montgomery going from wide receiver to running back. All of his percentile ranks changed dramatically because in general, the wide receiver position in the NFL is a more athletic position. There's a lot more players in the NFL at the wide receiver position running sub 4 5 40s. So when you compared Ty Montgomery to other wide receivers, he looked like a below average athlete. When you compare Ty Montgomery to other running backs in the league, he looks like an above average athlete. And because Ty Montgomery was a productive receiver at Stanford, was an efficient running back in Green Bay last year, and he's an upper percentile athlete overall at the running back position, I think he's a top breakout candidate this year. Do you agree? Oh, boy. Uh... If Aaron Jones were not in town, I would feel so much better about Ty Montgomery. 
And and I understand that people like Jamal Williams and they, and they kind of view him as a type of prospect that, you know, what – Jamal Williams looks like that three-down back. I, I don't buy it. Jamal Williams is not a three-down back. He can't catch. Exactly. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. If you like Jeremy Hill, then you'll love Jamal Williams. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And, and I'm not going to make that same mistake again. Um, but, yes, Ty Montgomery, kind of like you alluded to, He's one of those guys that, for a guy who's still learning the position, the fact that they were willing to give him fairly significant touches at various points during the year um, on a, in a super efficient offense, you know, one that's ripe for a fantasy running back to be top 10, um, Ty Montgomery is in, in a fantastic spot. Um, but the, the, the tough thing with me for Ty Montgomery is the running back position is one that can be effective in year one. They can be the, those guys who actually kind of break out, not really break out, but essentially see touches early on in their career. And the signal I'm getting from you know a, a team that's willing to invest two mid-round picks into running backs, um, it kind of speaks that they're at the very least not confident in Ty Montgomery. What are they going to do, Heath? They lost Eddie Lacy. What are they going to do? Are they going to not draft any running backs? All they have is Ty Montgomery, and he's been at the position for a year? I mean, they might have a lot of confidence in Montgomery, but they're not insane. That would be insanely risky to just roll with Ty Montgomery and not draft running backs. I mean, they're not going to do that. Of course they're not going to do that. But they also saw Ty Montgomery lead the league in yards per carry last year, number two in the NFL in breakaway run rate, and number one in the NFL in yards after contact per touch. So he was doing all the things that we want, right? Great outside runner, great inside runner, great in the passing game, and in every phase, incredibly elusive, 34.7% juke rate, evaded tackles per touch, number three in the NFL. So they have tape on Ty Montgomery being awesome on the football field regularly in Green Bay. I don't think that anyone in Green Bay is looking at numbers. <laughs> I don't believe any front office other than maybe Cleveland and New England looks at numbers much. But they at least have tape on him. They've seen him be pretty awesome. And they know he's got, and they know he has the size. And it's going to take Aaron Jones some time. Most rookies fail. Most mid to late round rookies fail in particular. So it's a long shot. As much as we love the Aaron Jones profile, I mean, who doesn't love that profile? Dominant, efficient, athletic. Boom, 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 boom. He checks all the boxes. But at the end of the day, he was drafted after Jamal Williams. And I don't give the Green Bay Packers credit for knowing what they have in Aaron Jones. It may take a year or two for them to unlock his potential because most front offices and coaching staffs are bad at self-scouting. I don't need to bring up a certain wide receiver that they still haven't figured out how to use. Do I? Do I? No. Do I? No. I think we're on the same Do page. I? Do I? I've read this story before, but I know how this ends. It ends with yes. Jeff Janis being a WR1 in fantasy for the New England Patriots in two years, and Aaron Jones being a stud running back for the Detroit Lions in three years. It takes time. And if we were talking about rational actors across these teams, I would say maybe. Maybe Aaron Jones has a genuine opportunity to win this job on merit. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think they're going to roll out Ty Montgomery and Jamal Williams as their one-two punch. I think Jamal Williams will be largely ineffective. 
and that will mean Ty Montgomery slowly cannibalizes the touches from Jamal Williams and becomes close to an every-down player. And an every-down running back in that Green Bay system with copious red zone touches, that's a player you want in fantasy football. 100%. And, you know, it's it's a point that was brought up by one of my fellow Rotoviz writers. Um, we really wish, and, and I think a lot of people kind of perceive numbers as being things that kind of removes I don't know it it removes some like emotion from the game um that we're not really evaluating these guys we're kind of like placing them by numbers on a on a chart and if you meet this certain you know number that you get here you play over this guy but you play under this guy ultimately when you look at the numbers yes you should play in that order because that is what you have earned that is that's the merit that should be you know, we should kind of throw everything out that everything else out that's saying, well, I don't know if I really believe in this guy as being a leader on the field. I don't know if I believe in this guy to, you know, does he get along with, you know, his fellow offensive players? Throw all that out. We just want the, the you know, essentially the people who have put forth the best work to be given the, you know, essentially the, the biggest piece of the pie. And Ty Montgomery should earn that. No, I disagree with that. I think it should be Tom Montgomery and Aaron Jones competing on an equal playing field for touches throughout training camp and preseason. Best man gets the every down workhorse job. I think that's what should happen if we're going strictly on merit based on what these guys did going all the way back to college. But that's not mm-hmm. how it works. Yeah, and... And the fact that I, I do like Ty Montgomery, and like you said, the, the the potential for opportunity as a fantasy running back in this offense is just immense. You know, we saw what a guy like Eddie Lacy was able to do. It wasn't that long ago that Eddie Lacy was a top three running back pick in fantasy football, and now he's essentially, you know, a backup offensive lineman for the Seattle Seahawks um, in between playing running back. And we see the opportunity with being Aaron Rodgers, you know, the guy that Aaron Rodgers hands the ball off to. It's hugely valuable. But Mike McCarthy, he's just an irrational guy at you know at the wheel. Can't trust him. You can't. So to really take a shot and plan on Ty Montgomery, taking a shot on Ty Montgomery for the right price, I think is totally valuable, totally valid to do so. But if you know steam picks up on Ty Montgomery and everyone kind of thinks he's just going to be the guy and assumes him to be, that's going to be the point to where I'm kind of you know essentially pulling the reins back and saying, uh, you know. Maybe at, at the right price, but not a guy I'm really that confident in because of, sadly, Mike McCarthy. We'll stay in the division with an equally horrendous coach, John Fox. Who is John Fox going to install as the Bears' primary tight end? There are certain roles and certain offenses that I just cannot figure out. One of them is Bears' tight end, randomly. Do you have any answers? It only makes sense for Deion Sims to be the starting tight end. Um, Deion Sims coming out of Miami, you know, he's a guy that was kind of buried on the depth chart, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, I think it had to be, a, you know, Jordan Cameron, that fiasco they had giving him all that money and kind of realizing that they had just sunk you know, this tremendous cost into this guy who was really nothing. I think they were trying to, I guess they thought they put him on the field more. He would produce better eventually. No, it's just he, he was the best tight end in Miami while he was there. He comes to Chicago. They actually give him a pretty decent contract. Yes. He's able, you know, for the tight end market, he got a pretty decent contract. Um, He's a great blocking tight end. Very underrated, you know, receiving tight end as well. Um, Zach Miller, I know he's there. Um, 
this is a guy who's really just a blip on the radar. He's actually out of football for two or three years and came in and was able to really, you know, put up some decent numbers when there was literally nothing else. I mean, they had to throw the football to somebody. Zach Miller, it was kind of just happened to be standing in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, caught a few, but he is legitimately, you know, very old, very, you know, very injured. Um, and Deion Sims should be that guy because Adam Shaheen, well, there are some things to like about him. Number one, rookie tight ends very rarely produce in, in their first year. And number two, Adam Shaheen, I don't think it's a, a point that's brought up enough. Adam Shaheen was essentially playing against guys that look like they were playing high school football as of a year ago. It, it didn't even look like he was playing other like in the right sport, essentially. We had a guy who was 280 pounds trying to be tackled by guys who were maybe – 220, 225 at at the heaviest um, in Division II football that he was essentially just, there was no competition for him at all. And now we move to the NFL, there's legitimate reasons to like his potential, but he still has to produce on that really upper echelon competition. He's not going to be able to get away with some of the stuff he did at Ashland. So No, of course not. No, Adam Shaheen is a taxi squad stash. I had Mark Mosier on the Roto Underworld podcast a couple months ago, and he talked about the Dallas Cowboys' genuine interest in Adam Shaheen. And even though they have Jason Witten, they were interested in Adam Shaheen because they deemed him the best blocking tight end in the class. This is why the Bears acquired Adam Shaheen. They burned a second-round draft pick on a blocking tight end. Now, we know he's a great receiver based on his numbers at Ashland. Incredible dominator rating, yards per reception, but that's not why NFL teams were excited to draft Adam Shaheen. If they wanted offense, they could have had offense in the fifth round, Bucky Hodges. NFL teams are interested in drafting tight ends that can block NFL edge rushers on day one, and they can get on the field in those two tight end packages. That's actually what they're drafting for in the second round and beyond when you see these NFL teams targeting tight ends and you're scratching your head going, what are they doing drafting a tight end here? Well, they often are looking for tight ends primarily as blockers and as receivers second. That had not occurred to me. And then, boom, we saw Adam Shaheen go in the second round. And I was like, oh, Mark Mosier did it again. He knows things. But who's going to be the primary tight end for the Bears? Not the secondary tight end, the primary tight end, the main guy. It's Deion Sims because you said it. He signed a three-year, $18 million contract with $10 million guaranteed. $10 million guaranteed. That's a giant contract for a guy that doesn't have that many receptions on his resume. The reason why the Chicago Bears wanted Deion Sims is because he stands 6'4", 271, and he's also an efficient receiver. Last year plus 18.8 production premium. That's our situation agnostic efficiency metric, looking at every given down and distance. How is Deion Sims performing against league average? That was top 10 in the league. He was also top 10 in catch rate. So he's catching balls thrown his way, and he's getting upfield and scoring touchdowns when he does catch those passes. So he's a relatively efficient player who's a great blocker. That's what we're looking for every down tight ends who are going to be in the game in all game situations. So when they run that bootleg play 
on the five-yard line, it goes to Deion Sims in the back of the end zone. That's how you ring up points from your tight end position, get those sneaky touchdowns. Deion Sims is absolutely capable of that. On the other hand, Zach Miller, he's only owed a million and a half dollars this year, and he doesn't even weigh 250 pounds. Zach Miller is a move tight end. He's very athletic, but as we've seen in this last draft class, lots of athletic move tight ends are getting drafted well after the trusted tight ends that are effective blockers. So that's what the NFL appreciates even more than your ability to catch down the seam. For that reason, I think they're going to install Deion Sims as their every down tight end, and I think he's incredibly undervalued across all formats. He's my second tight end that I'm targeting in all redraft formats, and I already own him in literally every dynasty league. My highest owned player across all dynasty teams that I own, which is something like 10 now, is Deion Sims. I think I own him in most leagues, and where I own him, I've also drafted and stashed Adam Shaheen so that I can monopolize the Bears tight ends. I mean, I can't believe I'm doing that. I'm monopolizing the Bears. I mean, that's just, when you say it out loud, it sounds like such an awful strategy, monopolizing the Bears tight ends. But when I say I'm monopolizing the Bears tight ends, I want to be clear. That doesn't mean I own any Zach Miller because I think Zach Miller's over. Zach Miller was over the day Deion Sims signed a three-year, $18 million contract. He's an all-purpose player at the tight end position tethered to a rookie quarterback, you need to get Deion Sims on your fantasy team. Let me ask you this as kind of a little bit of a follow-up. Deion Sims, we're we're in agreement here. Deion Sims is the the tight end owner in Chicago. He's a tight end one in fantasy. Lock it in. Oh, boy, we're locking it in? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. The the, the lock it in really gave it that extra effect. Yes, yes. The, The extra assurance that he would be a tight end one in fantasy was given when I said, lock it in. Deion Sims, lock it in. That'll be the name of the show. Perfect. But let me ask you this. What quarterback do you want on the field if we're just talking for the benefit of Deion Sims? I don't care. It's a tight end. It's not like he's... It's not like the quarterback's throwing out routes or double moves. It's a tight end position. It's, it's uh, the guy in the back of the end zone when you're rolling out. But let me be clear. I mean, Mike Glennon is terrible. I mean, I'll say that. I want Trubisky in there. Trubisky's better than Glennon. If the question is who's better, Glennon or Trubisky, it's absolutely Trubisky. It was Trubisky last year. If Trubisky was in the NFL last year, he would have been better than Mike Glennon. Mike Glennon is a below-average backup quarterback. If you want, possibly want a more effective offense with more red zone opportunities, I could say maybe Glennon. What? But he throws the ball forty nine miles per hour, and he has one of the lowest college <laughs> QBRs of any current NFL quarterback. He's never been good, and he's never had an NFL caliber skill set. I'm not sure how he's lingered in the league with any kind of name recognition and. I'll never understand how he signed a lucrative contract with the Bears. All mysterious to me. But fortunately, for those of us that own Bears skill position players in Dynasty, like Cameron Meredith, the Bears did draft Mitchell Trubisky, even though it was a misguided trade-up maneuver for a quarterback that didn't deserve to be drafted number two overall. They still did it. They still upgraded on Glennon, thankfully. I mean, thank God. Makes sense. I mean, the only thing I was thinking is possibly potential turnovers and the overall offense having more opportunities, but... 
No, it doesn't matter. We're talking about Mike Glennon here. We're talking about Mike Glennon. Mike Glennon is an atrocity. Now, speaking of atrocities, San Francisco 49ers. This team has been really bad. You think back, oh, well, not long ago, Colin Kaepernick was on the verge of a Super Bowl appearance. But that was five years ago. (laughs) It's been a while (laughs) since San Francisco was any kind of relevant. I mean, think about John Harbaugh's life. All the places he's been since appearing in the NFC Championship game. It's been a while. But I think things are turning around in San Francisco, but not because of the coach. Because they're getting some players that can play. Are you optimistic at all about San Francisco's offense in 2017? No. <laughs> <laughs> there are players on this offense that I really like. Uh, me and my my co-host Anthony Amico were talking about just the incredible ceiling i think that pierre garçon has this year oh so many targets so many targets. so many targets top 10 in the league in targets yeah yeah definitely um a guy like carlos hyde if he's able to stay healthy we've seen it from him he's able to do fantastic things on the field very good player um uh, joe williams perhaps he even kind of has like an, you know, a rookie breakout year and he's able to contribute on the field there are pieces i like but Joe Williams is fast. Jamal Williams. Yes. <laughs> but this offense as a whole, this team as a whole, is so void of talent that, no, it's the only thing I could really kind of hang my hat on is Garcon because I expect this defense to remain just as terrible as it was last year. I expect them to be trailing in a lot of games, and I expect them to not be able to really throw at anyone else. You know, there's, there's all these dart throws we've talked about for years. Bruce Ellington, DeAndre Smelter. No, 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 no. All I'm saying when I say that I think there might be a mild rebirth is exactly what you said. I think Hoyer's better than anyone Agree. wants to believe. We want Brian Hoyer to be bad for some reason. I don't think Brian Hoyer's bad at all. We want Brian Hoyer to be injury prone. I don't think any quarterback is necessarily injury prone. Just unlucky. I can see Brian Hoyer having a full season and being an above-average fantasy quarterback. It's not crazy for that to happen. That's what he was in Houston. Why can't he be that again? I don't. Why not? Why can't Pierre Garçon be his lesser DeAndre Hopkins? Why not? Why not? So that's all we're hoping for. We're hoping for Brian Hoyer smashing expectations, which is very possible because expectations are so low. Pierre Garçon smashing expectations because expectations are so low. And for Carlos Hyde to simply be Carlos Hyde and not get usurped randomly and suddenly and inexplicably by Joe Williams, which isn't going to happen. So we get some good play from Carlos Hyde, potentially an RB1 in fantasy. We have Pierre Garçon being a top 20 wide receiver, and we have Brian Hoyer being streamable. That's a hell of a lot better than anything we've gotten from the San Francisco 49ers over the last five years. If we get three fantasy-relevant assets on a weekly basis, woo Party time in San Francisco! Kind of harpens back to the 2015 Houston Texans, doesn't it? That's what I'm saying. DeAndre Hopkins, 192 targets. That's what I'm saying. Arian Foster, he was hurt that year, but, I mean, he was a bell cow yes. when he was able to get on the field. That's right. Uh, why Why couldn't that be the San Francisco 49ers? We're not going to get a fantasy point bonanza. We're not expecting this team to be any good, but fantasy relevance, I think, could emerge, you know, in, in kind of the, the, the disparate areas. Yes, yes. It's not going to be the L.A. Chargers. 
because the LA Chargers are fantasy relevant up and down that roster. We were talking earlier about two tight ends being relevant. I mean, <laughs> that's quite the luxury. And Philip Rivers is my guy. He's my late round guy. Philip Rivers is the guy I want once the first wave of quarterbacks is off the board. Everyone's locking up their quarterback. You're playing chicken with someone else in the league. Who's going to be the last player to draft a quarterback? Raise my hand. It's going to be me. And it's going to be Philip Rivers because Philip Rivers has always been an efficient and prolific quarterback. There are very few quarterbacks in the league that have been consistently prolific and efficient throughout their career. Philip Rivers is one of a handful, and yet his ADP somehow always falls outside the top 12 quarterbacks. Now this year he has a full array of weaponry. Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Tyrell Williams, Travis Benjamin. His fourth receiver is one of the fastest players in the league, stretching the field. He's got two productive tight ends, and he has an all-purpose bell cow who has been one of the better receiving running backs in the league the last couple years, right near the top of the league in catch rate. Melvin Gordon, they're going to score a lot of points, and Phillip Rivers is going to ring up a hell of a lot of fantasy points this season. Who's your guy? Who's your late-round quarterback? It's got to be Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton is a guy. That's my other guy. Well, I have a bunch of guys, actually. (laughs) I was hoping you would either say Andy Dalton or Eli Manning. All three of them would have been perfect choices. Yeah, Andy Dalton to me, not as much on Eli. Eli's AYA has been just kind of, it's it's really been discouraging. He took a huge drop last year, but. He's been inefficient. He's scarier than Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton's not scary yes. at all. Andy Dalton has a high floor and a high ceiling. 100%. Yeah. We're talking about a guy that has been a top 12 quarterback. Three out of the last, you know, four years. Um, I, I say that. Well, I should preface that with 2015. He was a one of the top five quarterbacks until he was hurt. Um, if you just kind of assume that, pan, you know, that point per game average, he was a very clear top ten guy. Um, 2014. The only reason he really wasn't a top guy is because he only threw the ball 481 times. Um, if he just meets that 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 threshold of attempts, he easily gets it every single year. He has AJ Green a consistent dominant wide receiver in the NFL. John Ross is a new addition to the offense. Tyler Boyd, whatever you think of Tyler Boyd, he may not be the the fantasy relevant guy we thought we were going to see every year, but he's still a very quality slot receiver. He's an ideal slot receiver. I mean, you could make a slot receiver in a lab, to my specifications, and out would walk Tyler Boyd. We talked about that earlier. Tyler Boyd has that quality that you want in your slot receiver, that je ne sais quoi factor, where he was incredibly productive at the college level without necessarily being a great athlete. Yeah, 100%. And then we have... You know, Gio Bernard. Gio Bernard is one of the most underrated oh. pass catching pass catching running backs in the league. We have a new addition of Joe Mixon, who could be an incredible three down back if things break right. So the Bengals have the best pass catching tandem in the backfield in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And in the fact that you know, Andy, I, a lot of I think a lot of people like to assume that Andy Dalton is this guy who's like. He's, he's like Alex Smith level because they, you know, they surround him with talent and essentially they do all the work for him. Absolutely not. This guy, um, 2015, AYA of 8.9. Last, 2016, 7.5. This is not a, you know, this is not a guy who's below average. 
in all of these efficiency categories. This is a guy who's, when he's given the opportunities, he produces on the field. Yes, he has the benefit of a good offense, but why are we going to, in our perception of Andy Dalton, why are we going to penalize him? Because we think, we assume he's a bad quarterback because it's kind of what you know, we just assumed early on in his career he would be a guy that would never, well, I, I should say, he goes to the playoffs and he doesn't do all that well. So maybe that sticks in some people's heads, but we're talking fantasy here. And in fantasy, this guy is the easiest money that you could possibly get every single year at the quarterback position. He's a guy that gives you top five upside every week in individual matchups, and you can consistently get him beyond the 10th and 11th round. Incredible. Incredible. He'll always be undervalued because he's a redhead. Redheads in our society are discriminated against time and time again. I can't think of any examples except this one, but I'm making this up. But I think that's that's why. I mean, he even went to the Fohawk. I, I, I did a, a study looking at his headshots back through time. And when Andy Dalton started going Fohawk, his numbers improved. Once you go Fohawk, you can never go back because you will be a less efficient quarterback. But even though he went Fohawk, it was still red. And for some reason, the football community does not want redheaded players to succeed. And I object to that. I think it's blatant discrimination, and it's wrong. Yeah, and people are open about it, too. They got to call him the Red Rifle every chance they get. Why can't Why can't he just be Andy Dalton, the fantastic quarterback that he is? He's got No, he's got to be the Red Rifle. Thank you. And people like, and people like to say, you. oh, he's the, the Red Pea Shooter. Right. <laughs> oh, Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah, it's always red, though. It's always red. I always have to call attention to that personal trait that he can't control just because his hair looks different than most hair you think he's somehow a flawed human being fuck you andy dalton's awesome exactly exactly okay gonna go rapid fire here for a little bit speed this show along better la williams tyrell or mike oh tyrell's not even close yeah yeah i like this i like how you're playing this game pick one muhammad sanu or taylor gabriel yeah give me give me the guy who has the higher ceiling taylor gabriel we see muhammad sanu as number one i don't want to ever experience that again Taylor Gabriel is explosive. Pick one, Eddie Lacy or CJ Procise? Procise, 100%. Wow, yes, 100%. I'm writing that down, 100%. Yes. <gasps> CJ Anderson or Devontae Booker? <gasps> Devontae Booker. Oh, snap! No, hit the right answer sound. Because ceiling matters. We don't know what we have yet with Devontae Booker. We just know he was incredibly productive at Utah, just as LaShawn McCoy was incredibly productive at Pitt. We just haven't seen what Booker can do at the NFL level with a productive offense and an efficient run-blocking offensive line. He had neither of those last year, and you're going to dismiss him after a partial season of opportunity, operating in one of the worst offensive systems in the NFL, depleted of surrounding talent, particularly at the quarterback position and the offensive line position, the two most critical components of an offense that can help to propel a running back's production. In that context, you're going to dismiss Devontae Booker. Shame on all of you who are dismissing Devontae Booker. Now, in that offense... They drafted a new number three wide receiver that has some potential. I'm hearing a lot of buzz about Carlos Henderson. Are you interested at all in Carlos Henderson? No. 
<laughs> that was great. I do think he's a great yards after the catch player and therefore well suited for slot duties. But on a team with Trevor Simeon as your quarterback, you cannot be drafting the number three receiver, and that's Carlos Henderson. So if you put Carlos Henderson on a different team, I would be very interested. You put Carlos Henderson on the Denver Broncos, I am not in any way interested. So speaking of rookie number three wide receivers, you have Chris Godwin, you have Taewon Taylor, you have Carlos Henderson, as I mentioned, you have Kenny Galladay. Which of these, or another one that I'm not even listing, rookie number three wide receivers has the best chance at a fantasy viable season this year? Oh, Taewon Taylor. Taewon Taylor is set up. He, he's in a prime spot to where kind of almost in, you know, Tajay Sharp as of last season. There is opportunity to be had in one of the most potentially, you know, uh, efficient offenses in the NFL, in the Tennessee Titans, that if Taewon Taylor is able yes. to get on the field, he's yes. able to produce, you know, early yes. in rookie camp, he plays a position yes. that is possible of doing it too because he's going to be playing out of the slot. So if Marcus Mariota likes him early on and potentially, you know, maybe Delaney Walker or Tajay Sharp, it's not going to be tough to really beat Tajay Sharp. It's, he's not really long for the league in my opinion. If he's able to really kind of you know grab hold of that that job early on, Taewon Taylor could very easily be fantasy viable in 2017. Corey Davis's foot flares up a little bit. Uh oh, here comes Taewon Taylor. God, I agree with you again. A lot of right answers here. Yes, what I'm thinking is right. So if you agree, you're right. That's how that works. Great minds think alike. Something like that. Taewon Taylor's best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is Doug Baldwin. And the reason I love Taewon Taylor's potential, both in redraft and particularly in dynasty, is because I love that fit. Marcus Mariota with Taewon Taylor, just like we saw with Doug Baldwin fitting so well with Russell Wilson. But for some reason, the fantasy community does not fully appreciate Doug Baldwin. He's the Andy Dalton of wide receivers. So is this the year that the fantasy community finally gets it right and respects Doug Baldwin as a tier one wide receiver? Are we finally going to be in that place this year, Heath? Oh, they should be if they're not. If they're not, if you're not considering Doug Baldwin a wide receiver one at this point, I, I don't really know what game you're really watching because everything about him is kind of signaling to you, yeah, the, the Seahawks really like him. Russell Wilson really likes him. He's able to produce when given enough opportunity to produce what what else do you possibly want this is a team yeah what else do you need what else do you need and it was reinforced in free agency i thought the seattle seahawks would be tempted to go out and sign a kenny Britt or a terrell Pryor. these are great values that could play the x receiver position and potentially supplant doug baldwin as that primary option in the passing game none of that materialized the Seattle Seahawks stayed pat in free agency. What did that tell you? That told you they're absolutely fine with Doug Baldwin as their number one option. Now, give me one late-round wide receiver that I must have in all seasonal formats. So if you're in an MFL 10, for example, who are you drafting in round 16 through 20 every time at the wide receiver position? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to go out on a real limb here. Because I, I don't really find a lot of people agreeing with me on this point, but I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out my case, and I, and I'm sure you will tell me if I'm stupid or not, because <laughs> other people certainly have. On this Mind of Mansion show, I never speak my mind. I don't tell it like it is ever. I'm almost always concealing my true beliefs. 
almost always. I mean, that's what I'm known for. Just sitting back, just making sure that I'm always being as polite as possible and never making my guests feel uncomfortable, ensuring that neither the guest nor the audience perceives me as rude. We would all agree that's my modem operandi on the show. 100%. 100%. But yeah, my, my late round guy, it's Victor Cruz. What? A lot of people are going to hear this. Huh? And they're going to say, exactly, huh, right? But hear me out. How? Hear me out here. So looking at Victor Cruz last year, everyone kind of assumed he's done, right? Following that devastating injury he had, um, rightfully so, you should have thought he was done. And I was not buying him last year. However, when I go back and I look at the efficiency metrics of Victor Cruz, he's actually he actually had a pretty decent season last year relative on a per-target basis. Josh Herms Meyer's racer metric, um, it's a metric that measures efficiency at Rotovis. Um, he ended up with a 0.68 on the season. Uh, Sterling Shepard had a 0.7, Odell Beckham had a 0.74. If you look at he had the highest average depth of target on the entire team, and it really his catch rate really kind of fell in line with those with an average depth of target of 15 yards. Um, we're talking about a guy who was a former elite wide receiver one in the NFL, coming to a new team, a young team without a lot of competition, you know, minus Cameron Meredith, of course. Cameron Meredith is a guy that, you know, should be liked in fantasy. Thank you for saying that. But with the exception of that, there is such there is such an opportunity here for a team, you know, for a, a veteran wide receiver, especially one with his capabilities, to come in on a one-year deal and to really just, you know, essentially make it a comeback tour for Victor Cruz. He's only 30 years old. He hasn't hit that age threshold yet to where he's going to significantly decline. He's going to see a ton of opportunity if he's able to essentially just kind of show 70%, 80% of what he used to be. Um, And and this is the guy that, with all the rest of the guys on that team, Marcus Wheaton. um, That's the thing. The Bears saw what they had in Marcus Wheaton and thought, oh, no, oh, no, 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 this this can't be it. And they also got yet another look at Kevin White. Yep. And they realized, oh, no, we don't, we can't, no. Yeah. No, no, not on Sundays. It's fine in May, mini camp, but on Sundays, no, no, no. We need a real wide receiver in here. Yep. I think Kendall Wright's a real wide receiver, and I think Cameron Meredith's a real wide receiver. I think these are real bona fide NFL wide receivers. But Victor Cruz completes that wide receiver core. I think that you have Cameron Meredith on the outside. You have Victor Cruz and Kendall Wright playing next to each other on the right side, playing off each other. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of opportunity for a guy that he used to be literally an elite number one on a team. And I understand that it wasn't that long ago we were saying Jimmy Graham. Hey, Jimmy Graham, you're done. That injury you sustained... Oh, all those doctors in the fantasy football community? <laughs> exactly. Mark Davis, okay, he got this injury. It's significant. Don't, you know, I'm not trying to downplay it. It is significant and it has ended many careers, but he recovered from it. Why not Victor Cruz on a team that is has so much opportunity available for someone to just take hold of it and not really any other outstanding competition minus Cameron Meredith? We started the show talking about how beat reporters – we're projecting Todd Gurley to lose touches to Lance Dunbar, who had a torn patella two years ago. Jimmy Graham is back, and he was efficient last year. Why not Victor Cruz? Victor Cruz has a 1,500-yard season on his resume. How many other wide receivers in the league have a 1,500-yard season 
on his resume. And he has incredible burst, 133.1 burst score, 94th percentile. Does he have that burst score anymore? No, not with a torn patellar. That's what the patellar does. It helps you explode. And a torn patellar saps your explosiveness. So what? His burst has now been diminished 30%, 40%. It's still above average. And that's not why Victor Cruz was winning on the football field in the first place. No one ever watched Victor Cruz play and thought, oh, this guy's the most explosive wide receiver in the league. No, he's a technician. This guy understands the nuances of the game, and at age 30, moving to a slot flanker role, that's where he needs to win. Those are the skills they're going to ask him to execute in Chicago, and I agree with you. I'm acquiring Victor Cruz in those deep dynasty leagues where I need depth. Yeah, and he is essentially free. Like, I looked up the the ADP on MFL 10s. Yeah, he's free. He's free. You know who else is free is, is Michael Campanaro. Are you familiar with a player named Michael Campanaro? Oh, I sure am. Slot wide receiver for the for the Ravens. Is it crazy to think that he could be good this year? Oh, absolutely not. Michael Campanaro, when he actually sees the field, he does great things. Yes. When he sees the field, he does great things. And I understand that. That's the exact type of player you should be chasing, just in case the injuries of seasons past were bad luck. And this is the year that he puts it all together. Denardo Alexander had a season like this, where he was hurt consistently, going all the way back to his time at college, but he had a year at Missouri where he was hugely dominant, just like Michael Campanaro had a year at Wake Forest where he was incredibly dominant. And then what happened to Denario Alexander, he ended up putting it together for a season, and he helped win Fantasy Gamers a championship. Well, that's all we want from Michael Campanaro. Just give us half a season of vintage Michael Campanaro at Wake Forest production. That's all we're looking for. Put him in the slot, let Perriman and Wallace operate on the outside, and let Campanaro suck up those targets underneath. Yeah. I want to see that, Heath. I want to see that. You and me both, Matt. Um, especially, you know, the Ravens have really been looking for a target over the middle that isn't just horrendously inefficient. I, I know Dennis Pitta was that guy last year, but he just he doesn't have it anymore. Sad sad to say. He just doesn't have it following kind of all those injuries that he had sustained. If Campanaro can really just stay on the field. Are we sure Dennis Pitta doesn't have it? We're sure sure? I'm pretty sure. Sh- I'm pretty sure. I mean. He led the league in receptions last year. Yes, he did. 86 receptions out of the tight end position. So you're going to say that the league leader in receptions doesn't have it? Well. That's weird. That's weird. I w- Admit it's weird. That's a weird thing to say. It is, it is weird. That's an aggressive thing to say. Imagine if I were Dennis Pitta's dad. I would be offended. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Pitta. You know, I I don't mean to disparage your son, but uh, your son, Dennis, while he did catch a lot of passes last year for the Ravens. The most in the NFL. The most in the NFL. Um, I, I have a feeling that if the Ravens had other options that were available, they would have use those options if Michael Campanaro was on the field I have a feeling Dennis Pitta would not have seen nearly as many targets as he did if Prashad Perriman was more available last year I think Mr. Pitta would not have seen nearly as many targets as he did all right in fairness my son's production premium target premium and yards per target were all outside the top 40 last year in fairness in fairness The Baltimore Ravens have a very ambiguous depth chart. We're just not sure who's going to be the number two wide receiver, the number three wide receiver. We think it's going to be Perriman and Michael Campanaro, but we're not sure. 
same is true in Arizona. We know Larry Fitzgerald is at least the token number one wide receiver at age 34, but we're not sure who the number two and three and four wide receivers are in that passing game. It seems every other day you read about Chad Williams on Roto World, but John Brown's the most talented wide receiver in that group. J.J. Nelson was the most efficient one last year. Now Chad Williams has the draft capital. How do you rank that target totem pole heading into 2017 for the Arizona Cardinals? It's going to be Fitzgerald and John Brown at the top one, two still. Um, J.J. Nelson, I wish they would just use him more. No J.J. Nelson? No? Just, Just use him more, Arizona. He's really good. But you're saying, definitively, it's... Fitzgerald and Brown, that this idea that J.J. Nelson has usurped John Brown, that's not right. I would, I'm going to wait to see it to believe it, to say that, because, you know, this team, so many teams are run off of the coach's feelings, and Bruce Arians is definitely one of those guys. Smokey, he loves to call him Smokey. That's one of his dudes. Um, And if John Brown is on the field, I have a feeling he's still going to be number two in targets. Well, I think J.J. Nelson offers... Um, the same set, if not more than John Brown. Um, I think he's just kind of going to play second fiddle to John Brown, and they're they're both along that that same kind of you know field stretching type role. Um, so I would play you know I'd have Fitzgerald, John Brown, sadly JJ Nelson behind him, and likely I, I think Chad Williams sees more than Jerron Brown this season. I know they like Jerron Brown, but he just he's never really done it for me. They don't like him as much as they like Chad Williams. Larry Fitzgerald said that Chad Williams reminds him of Anquan Bolden. Anquan Bolden. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, he's a guy that coming out of college, I essentially every dynasty league, by the way, that I have, I own Chad Williams. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why this guy did not catch on, why he just continued to just be looked over in the third round of every single dynasty draft I'm in. He has everything you want. No idea. I don't know how it happened. Once Chris Godwin and Taewon Taylor were off the board, I was just auto picking Chad Williams. Yeah, and it was the easiest, and it was a it was a very clear layup pick too. I mean, he has draft capital, third round guy. He's got a, a good college dominator. He's got a four four five forty speed. He's got nice bursts. He's a, he's an agile guy. I guess you can maybe make an argument of like he went to Grambling State, but. Ah, enough of that. All his comps are quality players. His comps are Reggie Wayne, Malcolm Mitchell, Jeremy Macklin. Those are incredible comps. Now, the Arizona Cardinals coaches were comparing him to Larry Fitzgerald, and Larry Fitzgerald was comparing him to Anquan Bolden because NFL players and coaches are nothing if not hyperbolic. But when you're just talking about real, actual comparables, they're also incredible. Future Hall of Famers like Reggie Wayne are on the list. Yes, Chad Williams looks like a player, but I'm not drafting him in redraft. There are three receivers ahead of him on the target totem pole, and I don't see that changing even if Chad Williams has an excellent preseason. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if I'm really even that all, all that excited, you know, to get a piece of this Arizona passing game anyway. You know, we've been watching Carson Palmer over the last year and a half, and he kind of looks dust. I, I don't. I'm not really all that excited. I understand that him and Larry Fitzgerald, they just kind of keep doing it year after year. Larry Fitz, you know, he just kind of seems to somehow be defying age in terms of production. Um, But outside of that, any part of this Carson Palmer passing offense, I'm not that super excited about. 
um, outside of maybe those kind of those field stretcher type guys in, in best ball leagues. fun i love talking to you matt you know in fantasy mm. football he's just gonna be a monster right a monster mm. Mm. and then i remember looking at player profiler at that time you know it was kind of it was kind of new on the scene it's kind of new on the scene and i and i thought wow you know he's not very fast no it's not very agile no no not really great burst no he, he's no. he's big yeah but no. wasn't particularly dominant at lsu yeah, not very productive mm-hmm. on a team where he should have been very productive, given mm-hmm. they had Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry. He should have, you know, had plenty of opportunity in that LSU offense. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, you know what? Maybe I'll just roll with this first year because I think I saw what I needed to see on the field. And that's where my fundamental mistake was. The eye test was revealed as the lie test. If you like Jeremy Hill, then you'll love Jamal Williams. I don't fucking know, but I know it's a pretty short list. Tyreek Hill might not have more catches this year than Jeremy Macklin. (laughs) 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 What? I saw that. I was like, I did a double take. I was like, the Tyreek Hill? Wow, betting on efficiency carrying over in the most ridiculous way possible. Yeah, maybe he thinks Andy Reid is a real creative guy and just everything he touches turns to gold. He doesn't ever account for college. He only looks at draft capital. If you give him Dominator, he just doesn't, he's like, what? (laughs) Breakout age, he's like, huh? Agility score, he's like, whatever. He doesn't look at any of that stuff. Yeah. So if you do nothing but you were drafted high, he still projects you arbitrarily, like Kevin White. All Mike Clay knows is what Hunter Henry did last year, and he's just going to project forward. It doesn't matter that the guy was an underwhelming prospect to begin with. That idea that our understanding of players extends back and is more contiguous, that's a very powerful thing that we have at our disposal that even the great Mike Clay doesn't have. If Mike Clay's not doing it, think generic guy at big media fantasy site. Think Fabiano's doing it? Hell no. Corey Davis's foot flares up a little bit. Uh Uh-oh. Here comes Taewon Taylor. God, I agree with you again. A lot of right answers here. Jeremy Hill kind of, remember that first season? Looks spectacular. Nearly five yards per carry. I mean, he he looked tremendous, and it's like, okay, he well, he he's just going to be the guy because he's just he's a big guy. He can do it on all three downs. Why not? And I remember looking at player profiler and I'm like, you know, nothing about this makes sense. <laughs> nothing about this really makes sense. But it's oh, okay. Well, no, but but he had the production. He looked great. If you're an every down guy, the defense can't key on Le'Veon Bell. But when Chris Thompson's out there for Washington, they can key on that. So I always believe in the bell cow as the best case scenario. We'll see if Gurley gets less work. He's, he's, he's good. So 
poor guy. He didn't know. When he got drafted by the Rams, he didn't know. He was like, oh my gosh, top 10 pick. This is so exciting. Wow, I didn't know I was going to go so high. I'm going to make a lot of money. I have a, a shoe deal or whatever they give top 10 picks. I don't know. Because there's some there's some real bad takes out there. When someone says Todd Gurley is just not that good of a pass catcher. They're wrong. They're dead wrong. They're just, they're dead wrong. He's fantastic at it, actually. You're not going to get any cup arguments from me. It's a, that's the difference between someone from, you know, Rotoviz. They're not going to fall for that shit. Now, speaking of atrocities, San Francisco 49ers. Are you optimistic at all about San Francisco's offense in 2017? No. We get three fantasy-relevant assets on a weekly basis. Time in San Francisco. I've talked about Evan Ingram to death on so many different shows. We can do it on your show, though. I'm just looking at it like, well, I guess if we just, you know, the entire house falls down, I have Zach Miller still. I'm monopolizing the Bears tight end game, which is just a horrific idea with a rookie quarterback. It's just such a dead roster spot. I'm just giving them away. It's just I'm, 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 I'm tilting on the Bears tight ends. Rookie narrative to tight end narrative will, will never go away. So, But it's a long list that encompasses a lot of good receivers. That's the company that Pharaoh Cooper is keeping. So if you're Sean McVay and you're considering playing Lance Dunbar more because you had success with Chris Thompson, you're doing it wrong! New coach comes in and brings in his guy from a previous team, you know, and it's like, buddy, what are you doing? What do you think the odds are that the best tight end for you just happens to be the tight end you had before? I mean, think about the probabilities of that and open your eyes. The guy you have is better. Not from strictly a player personnel type thing, but like the head coach duties as a whole. Like if you have just everything thrown at you, it's like, okay, well, you're the head coach now. Do everything. They're compartmentalizing. I get it. Exactly. I know what they're doing. I disagree with it, and I think that's an excuse, and they need to do better. That's not how you beat Bill Belichick, by fucking compartmentalizing and taking all the guys from old teams that flamed out with the Jaguars. You're going to waste four years developing a tight end. When he turns 26, you're going to let him go. That is so fucking stupid. And they also got yet another look at Kevin White. And they realized, oh, no, we don't, we can't, no, 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 not on Sundays. Imagine if I were Dennis Pitta's dad. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Pitta. Once you go Fohawk, you can never go back because you will be a less efficient quarterback. And people like to say, oh, he's the, the red pea shooter. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Just because his hair looks different than most hair, you think he's somehow a flawed human being. Fuck you. Andy Dalton's awesome. Everybody that comes on, I eventually ultimately run them over and just answer the questions. The the red pea shooter. <laughs> because the way he speaks is so condescending. And I don't know if he intends it to be that way, but it definitely comes off that way. Yeah, yeah it came off to me that way. And I obviously didn't let him get away with that. He called one of my responses disingenuous, which was just such a fuckhead thing to say and i shot right back at him down boy you're out of fucking control dude this is my show who the fuck do you think you're talking to 
to be honest, I knew it was good radio while it was happening. I was enjoying it because you're not going to win in some sort of banter exchange with me on any podcast. I mean, the first podcast I went on was with Ross Tucker, and I was supposed to go on with Evan Silva. I heard that. And Evan Silva was sick. And I was on with Ross Tucker by myself in my first podcast, and I was running circles around Ross Tucker. Ross Tucker was trying to tell me what's what because he played offensive line. And I was telling Ross Tucker, no, I don't actually believe that's how it is, Ross. And I was giving him examples, giving him counterfactuals, and he didn't have a response. To me, it was good radio because there's banter and tension, and that's good, and awkward silences and all those things, and I actually love to sink into that and relish it. And I imagined the audience would enjoy it, but they did not. It was a weird thing. They got strangely defensive of me. They were like, you can't let him talk to you like that. You can never have him on the show again. It's as if my parents heard it, and they were like, nah, that may be uncomfortable. I don't like anyone talking to you like that. And, I, you know, you, you have respect for the people that came before you, of course. And, you know, but to me, he has a disdain for fantasy football because he thinks that's a fine art to evaluating YouTube clips. And the fact that he does fantasy football because it's the biggest audience that he can capture. He doesn't like it, but he knows it's the best way to him succeeding in the business. But that's the life you've chosen, bro. That's a level of self-loathing in your profession that I will never participate in. Why the hell would I have him on again? Because having him on means I can't have someone else on who I really like. So fuck that guy. The, the red pea shooter. <laughs> Most front offices and coaching staffs are bad at self-scouting. I don't need to bring up a certain wide receiver that they still haven't figured out how to use, do I? Do I? Do I? Do I? Do I? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I think we're on the same page. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Mr. Pitta.